0: Hi and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side.
1: And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering.
0: Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences.
1: There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast.
0: Welcome to today's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. Today, in episode five, we are going to talk on 2020 in review. And early 2021, we will have a goals and uh, plans for 2021 session as well. Actually, in going through our achievements, or so to speak, of this year, which turned out to be different than we originally thought because of the pandemic, we found that there was quite some food for discussion in there. So we decided to make this an episode in itself instead of reflecting on 2020 and already looking towards 2021. So with that said, we wanted to look at both some updates on our research, our achievements in our research in 2020 and the effect of the pandemic on that, as well as our personal projects. So let's start with the research progress and possible delays because of the pandemic. Rico, can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has influenced your research and what you have been able to do and whatnot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been really lucky in that unlike a lot of people, I was able to finish the majority of my testing prior to the lockdown in March due to the pandemic. And so we had tested most of our test specimens. And then the only remaining one, we were able to get back into the lab in June. So luckily for me, I have been doing most of my work from home and, you know, that's what I would have been doing otherwise. So I'm very lucky that I wasn't uh, too much affected in that regard. And what about you, Eva? Was your research uh, much affected by that?
0: I think the biggest impact on my whole work has been that I have not been able to go to the Netherlands this summer. I had these big plans of staying a little longer than usual. I was going to take my daughter and I had the childcare arranged and and everything set and, and organized and then... All those plans folded. So I think in terms of research, that has been the biggest impact. We were originally planning to start experiments on slab specimens in the laboratory in the summer when I would be there. But that has been delayed because of the lockdowns, etc. So that has been a major delay But then in terms of positive impact, I was contacted at some point uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to see if I would be interested in writing an article on how the pandemic has influenced academic parents. And uh, I gave it some thought and uh, reached out to a number of colleagues internationally. And we set up a study, collected data and hope to submit the article before the end of the year. So that has been an opportunity that came out of this that otherwise would not have happened.
1: Oh, wow. So that's out of your normal field of research.
0: Yes. Of course, I reached out to colleagues from different fields to work on this together with me as well as to use their experience in in these types of, of data collection because we use an online survey. And I do have a survey already on the PhD defense that I've been working on in parallel with the book on the PhD defense and I had already experience in in setting up surveys and before than that I had already gone through a a number of references on methods for quantitative and qualitative uh, research but this was at a in a much shorter time frame and uh, a more international scope.
1: Well that's really interesting I mean you know talking about silver lining at least for the research side of things.
0: Mm -hmm, Yes, and it it has also been really nice to just uh, connect with with other researchers from different countries and to work on this together. That has been uh, certainly a big silver lining for me.
1: To a lesser extent, the silver linings for me has been more and not less contact with my PhD supervisor and our research group prior to the pandemic we hadn't really set up a regular meeting time it was just sort of ad hoc as as needed and um, after when the pandemic started and we, we were noticing that everybody was not communicating and sort of at home doing their own thing we set up a weekly meeting it's been very helpful and also to have like a, a deadline you know where you have to show up every week with this is what i've done and you know here's how i've made progress so that's sort of a you know to a lesser extent a silver lining of this whole uh, working from home pandemic situation
0: Yes, and it's definitely a better way of discussing IDs and results than emailing back and forth.
1: And even being able to present your screen or share your screen is super helpful. You know, if, if we meet in an office, at least for myself, I always bring my USB stick and we plug it into the computer and we all look at it together. But if if the graph or the figure that I wanted isn't on that USB stick, well, you know, that's going to wait for next week. But now because I can share the screen, like we can pull up things and look at them immediately. So hopefully that's something that uh, sticks around. In terms of actual uh, progress made on research, obviously your slab experiments were delayed in Delft. but what research progress have you made?
0: Um, I had funding to organize a workshop that was going to take place in, in Ecuador and then funding we lost because of the pandemic, also because it would not be possible to organize the workshop in October. And I had been working on some research related to fatigue I actually came to the project when it was already finished. I pretty much got the data and do something with it and make sure some of this get published. And there is much more in there that I would like to do, but it doesn't have funding. So it it just doesn't get to my priority list because it would be more for my entertainment and uh, following my nose rather than having to deliver uh, a report after a certain amount of time.
1: Yeah. And uh, what about publications? Have you had a lot of uh, publications this uh, this year?
0: It's been less than normal. There's like a steep drop down this year. A lot of that has to do with usually I work on a project, and then when it's done, I publish from it, and then another project comes. So I really have ups and downs in in my output. It's not a steady number every year or a steadily increasing number. Uh, I think 2018 was a low year because that was the maternity leave effect rolled out. And then this year has been less than usual. But there's also been some papers that came out this year that had already been finished before all of this happened. So what that turns out in totals, um, journal papers were seven and one is accepted and one in press in terms of being the lead virtually all of them have been co-authored efforts but that's also the the stage of my career i would say Then there's some some that i still take the lead on but of course i'm more moving towards supporting my students in putting their work forward
1: well that's more than mine because i don't have any (laughs) this year (laughs) but of course you know i'm starting out in the phd so and in the meantime, also, I've been working with uh, a, a past student of my professor who is now a, a professor himself in Iran. And so we're collaborating with him on a paper as well.
0: So uh, in overall progress of your PhD, where are you and have you passed any milestones this year?
1: Well, I had a couple of big milestones that I that I was able to uh, put away this year. Early on in the first couple of months, I completed the final course to complete my coursework requirements for the PhD. And then bigger than that is I was able to complete my comprehensive examination in June. Essentially, I had to produce a research proposal and then present that research proposal to a committee. And then from there, answer questions. You're also quizzed on general knowledge and things that you should know if you're going to complete a PhD in the field of structural engineering. And so that was a a big weight off my shoulders that I was able to complete that in June.
0: Congratulations. Those are big milestones. Yes.
1: Yeah, I was happy. I was happy to have that uh, completed. I think it's sort of a PhD defense light. Hopefully my defense, unless things really take a turn for the worst, it's going to be in person. But this uh, comprehensive examination was done over Zoom. And uh, how has your teaching been going or your teaching activities, Aba?
0: I've been teaching more than usual. I usually teach one course in what here is the spring semester and one course in the fall semester this year. So I taught the same course in the spring, summer and fall semester. And I also taught for the first time a course in our Master of Engineering program here in in Ecuador, um, which was a two week intensive course. Um, So overall, my teaching load this year has been more than normal, just based on the number of courses and then making the switch to online teaching has been uh, quite a challenge. So I, I also took courses to, to learn how to teach online and learn how to, to use blended flexible learning and Along the same line of courses related to teaching, I also completed the four courses of the Dutch University Teaching Qualification that I still had to fulfill. So because these were now online, I actually had the chance of taking them all through Zoom and then through UCU and some parts through Teams. I'm waiting on getting my final exam for that.
1: And so is that a requirement for university professors in the Netherlands to pass a a teaching qualification?
0: Yes, in the Netherlands, all professors within the first four years of their appointment have to get the teaching qualification. Because I have a part-time appointment, I didn't have to do it, but it was strongly recommended. And I was already planning on taking two of the courses over the summer when I was going to be in the Netherlands. And then I thought, well, I can just steam along and and, uh, try to obtain that certificate.
1: Well, I think just the fact that you have that or that that's required in the Netherlands, I think that's a good requirement for professors that are going to teach, especially undergraduate courses.
0: And I learned a lot from it. The nice thing is that the four courses are centered around this idea of constructive alignment and different cognitive levels. So it really helped me in going back to the drawing board for my course and saying, what do I really want them to be able to do at the end of the semester? And sort of separate out the chaff from the wheat, especially now in virtual teaching, what is really the most important? What are we going to focus on and what is maybe nice to talk about, but not really the main object? Objective
1: of my teaching. Hmm. So that's interesting that your teaching load has, uh, has increased. Myself as well, I had a teaching assistant uh, posting. So most semesters I'm, uh, I work as a teaching assistant for the university. And this semester, it was the first time I was a teaching assistant for sort of an early level undergraduate course. And because of that, I was given the task of hosting the tutorial sessions. And these tutorial sessions typically have uh, around 100 or 100 or more students in them. And so it was the first time I actually got to lecture a class, so to speak. So talking in front of 100 students and uh, having to do that every week, figuring out what I was going to talk about, which problems I thought were relevant and also would um, keep the students interested. It was a light version of of a course design where I only had to do basically an hour, hour and a half lecture uh, once a week. And so that was really interesting. And I think I learned a lot from that. I'm going to also be doing that uh, the coming semester. And so hopefully uh, it's even better the second time around. And then additionally, talking a little bit about teaching and the the challenges with uh, marking and grading. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've noticed a lot more questions from students teaching remotely because obviously they email the professors and I'm sure the professors have been overwhelmed with emails. But even as a teaching assistant, the the amount of emails, I think students are becoming more comfortable uh, emailing rather than waiting for office hours and so uh, lots and lots of questions which is a blessing and a curse for the students because obviously they have better access to the professor and the teaching assistants but at the same time I think something that maybe a student would have uh, struggled with on their own and figured out on their own and maybe benefited from that now they're more likely to ask that question instead of trying to figure it out on your own do you have any thoughts about this about um, the the greater number of student emails and questions
0: yes I definitely have noticed the same. My guess here is one of the things that students have lost is now as well the ability to work together in the library or some part of campus, try to work through an example in a, in a group and bounce off ideas of each other. And even though I've tried to set up a lot of group work assignments, I think the current situation is not very helpful to, to really get people to work together. So I I do notice that a lot of questions, much more questions than normal come in, the same questions from different students. So then I think they could have in a small group perhaps have thought about it together and fleshed it out together as well. um And, and that's a, a particularity here at university that even though we have office hours, it's quite common to stop by without an appointment to ask a quick question. And that has now turned into an email as well.
1: I guess when you put it that way, it makes sense. If you would have talked to 10 students during office hours, now it's more likely that you're going to receive 10 emails. It's difficult times for teaching. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I think it requires a lot of rethinking. And even though we got some training on, on teaching in a, a blended environment or hybrid flexible environment. It's not that we prepared for this very well. We were thrown into the storm without preparation. So I do think you cannot come out of it undamaged. But I think we've all done our best. And for me, it it means a shift from exam styles of assessment to more projects and really trying to set up group work for the students to encourage them to get together through Zoom, at least, and, and discuss ideas.
1: I've, I've noticed that that's been a common strategy for uh, the professors that I've interacted with and in that they've moved away from exams for two reasons. First of all, cheating is more common when you have a 16-hour exam, right? You, you kind of do the exam as a group. But in addition to that, I think it's more conducive to online learning is having time to work on assignments and having bigger projects to work on, group projects. I think that's a good strategy for the online learning aspect. So Eva, I know a lot of your work, in addition to teaching and research, is service on committees. And how has that been affected?
0: Probably we need a little bit of explanation here on the type of committees that I mean. These are really technical committees, so part of technical societies and not university committees. So I am not that much involved with any university committees um, but I am involved with a number of technical committees and I think that's very much typical for engineering professors is that we really want to turn our research into practice so we work together with people from industry and governments typically in the development of documents, codes and regulations and that. So with that said I have done a fair amount of committee work for the American Concrete Institute, the ACI. We put together a special publication on torsion design examples. And in a number of committees that I serve on, we are working on these types of documents. So I'm currently working on three different documents for the ACI. And then the other society that I'm involved with, so to say, is the C R B the Transportation Research Board, where I was involved last year with the development of a document on on bridge load testing. And this year, sort of to disseminate our findings and, and our recommendations, we did a number of workshops. We did Actually, a workshop at the conference in in January when that was still uh, taking place in in Washington. And then we had planned two webinars. And well, when we planned them, we were pre-pandemic. And then it turned out that these webinars were very well attended because webinars became a bigger thing this year. Along the same lines, in what is editorial work, I'm taking the lead as the chief review editor of the May 2021 issue of the Structural Engineering International Journal, which is the journal of the IAPSI, the International Association for Bridge and Structural Engineering. And that issue of May 2021 is going to have, or at least the part that I'm taking the lead on, is really recent research and projects in Belgium and the Netherlands. So that ties in with... Uh, a conference that will be in Belgium. And since I'm on the editorial board of that journal, and I'm the Belgian working in the Netherlands there, I kind of volunteered to, to take the lead on that. And within my work here at the University in Ecuador, I am the editor-in-chief of the journal that is Asi Avances, that's Avances en Ciencias e Ingenierías. It's a journal of our university on science and engineering and this is very typical of universities in this part of the world that they have their own journals so there's not that much publication by the big publishers um, but there's a lot of push for open science and open access publishing from the university. so the universities provide the infrastructure for having a small journal and we have this journal of uh, a number of journals within our university is this journal of science and engineering that publishes both in Spanish and English and being being the uh, editor-in-chief of a smaller journal means I, I pretty much see everything from submission and uh, plagiarism checks of a certain article all the way through review and revisions to the, the part that an editor sometimes of a larger journal doesn't see, which is the production stage of the paper. I don't do the actual copy editing, but I oversee the copy editing and I oversee the actual layout design of the final journal. So I'm involved at all stages there.
1: Okay. So I didn't know that that was a typical thing in uh, universities, I guess, in in Latin and South America to have university journals like published from your university. That's super interesting. I, I imagine that that's a very interesting and rewarding job being the editor in chief or something like that.
0: Yeah, it runs on a lot of volunteering efforts from professors of university to make it possible. But the result of that is that with the help from university to the infrastructure, we do have an open access journal that does not charge an APC a a publishing cost.
1: So I had a question about these technical committees that you um, volunteer for. I guess you're invited to be on the ACI committee on Torsion, for example, or is that something you apply for? How does that work?
0: Uh, In my case, I have to kind of dig in my memories. My first involvement with any ACI committee, it was actually parallel for two committees. One is the database, uh, sheer databases. And I remember the former chair of the committee giving a presentation at another conference saying that they would need help with people checking the database. So afterwards, I sent him an email saying, well, I'd be happy to help out with that. And that's how I, I got involved with that committee. And around the same time, there was a call for papers for a special publication on slabs that I had written an abstract for and then gave the presentation and then wrote the paper for the special publication. And uh, as I started to travel more often to ACI, I was approached by the chair of that committee asking if I would be interested to join their meetings and because he had seen my work that I had presented during the session that was attached to that special publication.
1: So that's interesting. So there's sort of multiple routes to get there. Yes. Yeah, that sheer database was uh, Rynick, right?
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: I, I had to reference that for my research as well.
0: Uh uh-huh. The interesting part of that committee is it's actually a joint committee between the DAFSTB, the Dauertschauschuss für Stahlbeton, and the ACI.
1: Yes. Okay. That's the German, I guess, acronym that I keep seeing. Yes. Okay. How have the students that you supervise, how have they been faring?
0: So I supervise anything from graduation projects of the bachelor's degree here in Ecuador to PhD students. And I've definitely seen an uptick in the amount of students that I supervise. I was recently looking back at my online calendar, seeing what my days looked like early 2019 and uh, what they look like today with... uh, the number of supervision meetings that I have. So there has definitely been an increase there over the last year and a half. In terms of how they fared through the pandemic, I would say that each student individually, depending on their personal situation and where they are in their research and whether they are international students, which makes it harder not being able to see family, or if they are in the country where they're from in terms of the actual supervision I was already supervising remotely before than that I think it's made some of the committee meetings easier with everybody connecting through Zoom and not me having to say hey don't forget I will be connecting through WebEx and please go to one of these meeting rooms uh, that have the facilities for me actually being able to hear the full discussion which often was uh, an issue with mostly for the master thesis students because we um, supervise them as a committee and we typically have the program meetings with the entire committee. For the PhD students, before the pandemic started co-supervising a number of students internationally, one of them from our neighbor to the North, Colombia, who came to spend a full semester with me in Quito. But actually that was the spring semester. And we met a few times on campus. And then he actually got stuck in the place that he was renting for his stay. And I, at my home and being, what is it, three kilometers apart, talking through Zoom.
1: That's super unfortunate for that student.
0: Yes, and also in in terms of not having the chance to to go see much of the country and all of that, just getting stuck in a in a rented room for a, a couple of months on end. Yeah, I can give a a quick breakdown of funding most of my funding at the moment are the two big projects on load testing that are running and that will run for a number of years Um, but I've also been working on European funding and one proposal got rejected Uh, one is in review and I have one proposal with funding from the United Kingdom that is to be submitted so we'll see how that goes
1: yeah, for myself, I don't do much funding applications, but I've uh, been applying to some uh, scholarships. We have the provincial and the federal one here in Canada for engineering. And then there's also the the ACI scholarship that I uh, applied for this year. And...
0: and that funding is to cover travel or that is mostly to cover additional expenses? How does those scholarships work?
1: Uh, yeah, so those types of scholarships, those are... Um, just for your expenses. So they're not contingent on funding travel or research. They're just sort of a stipend to cover your tuition and your living expenses. In terms of travel expenses, hopefully once we have a reason to travel and hopefully I get to submit a paper to some conference somewhere and I get to travel there, there's additional uh, travel uh, bursaries that you can apply for. In addition to that, if you are to travel to conduct research as opposed to presenting at a conference, there's scholarships available for that. And in fact, I, I have to check this, but for the university, I have a certain amount that was allotted for this type of travel.
0: Well, fingers crossed.
1: Yeah, and other things that have been affected. I'm just looking at my my sort of my year in review. Uh, I'm involved with this team. It's a um, a not for profit organization called Engineers in Action. What they do is the branch of it that I'm involved with is constructing footbridges in Iswatini. It's a country within South Africa, so it's uh, completely enclosed by South Africa. Iswatini. They conduct footbridges in isolated uh, regions for isolated communities, give those communities access to essential resources like education or access to markets and that's that sort of thing and uh, we have a student chapter at McGill that was started I believe it was 2018 and they had asked me to to be involved as sort of a a mentor advisor sort of role and uh, they had completed one bridge in 2019 and then they were (laughs) all set for their one uh, in uh, 2020 and then of course the pandemic hit and that got derailed and so now they're gearing up for um, a uh, bridge construction project in 2021 and so the students design and then travel to the location to build the bridge and they also have, uh, in addition to working in Eswatini, they work in Bolivia as well. It was bad because they raised money to be able to travel and that sort of thing. And then a wrench got thrown in those plans.
0: So that is for research progress and teaching and everything related to work. Uh, How about personal life and projects? Have you picked up any new interests during the pandemic? Have you done anything that you otherwise would not have done? And how has the pandemic shifted that?
1: In terms of things i wouldn't have done not really but what i've been trying to do uh, and i started this basically last year is every month i'll pick a new skill that uh, i want to pick up or uh, something interesting that i want to learn more about and try and work on that for 30 days or uh, obviously some skills take longer than that but this year i'll give you the, the the quick rundown and uh, it's sort of an eclectic mix of things. The most recent one of which is uh, I've been trying to play chess and become a little bit of a better chess player. And that's, of course, because I watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix and got really into chess for this month. Uh, And other hobbies, uh, I took a classical music course because I felt that I didn't have much appreciation for classical music. And it's such a broad topic. And there's so much beautiful music out there that I feel like sometimes you need to have a little bit of an introduction to it. Um, And other ones, you know, language learning. I've been trying to improve my Italian. And my fiance speaks Greek. So I've been trying to improve my Greek, not with much success, mind you, Uh, doing a lot more cooking. Oh, I I learned uh, Morse code again, really bizarre skills. And then, of course, I've been trying to do more reading. And I know you're a big reader as well. Do you have any standout books that you've read this year?
0: Yeah, I made a list here of the five books that stood out most to me. What I did at the beginning of the year, I actually used from the blog Modern Mrs. Darcy, I used her lists, like prompts of look for a book in translation, look for a book from the decade that you were born. So I actually used that to think more about what I want to read. And that also included a classic you never read. At the beginning of the year, I said, well, this year I'm going to work my way through War and Peace. So I first thought it was going to be hard because it's such a monster of a book, but I read it during the pandemic and I think I read read through it about a month or something like that. So I, I kind of flew through it. And along the same lines, I listened to Capital by Karl Marx around the same time, which kind of set me off on thinking that the 19th century was pretty miserable. And I must say the beginning, I I definitely would have needed pretty much an economics course to go along with it to capture the full parts of it. More towards the end, that is more of a social critique of the early days of the Industrial Revolution and how that made the lives of people miserable is the part that really caught my attention.
1: Like, How many novels or books would you say you would read over the course of a year?
0: It depends on the year. I think I'm at 60 plus this year. And it was a little more last year. And there's been one standout year 2014 when I made it to over 100 books. But typically, it's uh, a little over a book a week.
1: Wow, okay. And how do you manage that? You don't do speed reading or anything like that? Is it just you don't watch TV, instead you'll be reading or...
0: I read to unwind before bed and I always have a number of books going on at the same time. I read a lot digitally so I have a an e-reader that I use for a lot of my reading which right now is as well a blessing because I can't really get to a bookstore and definitely cannot get to buy Dutch language books here in Ecuador. So that has been very helpful. I've seen once I started to read on an e-reader I did start to read more and I have the e-reader app on my phone so when I find myself stuck somewhere for a little while and I don't have my e-reader with me, I will pull up the book and read on my phone.
1: Well, that's a a crazy amount of books to read in a year. You're talking about a hundred a couple years ago. Like I read 20 books last year and I was super proud of myself. Like, awesome, a book every two weeks, I'll take that, you know?
0: Which one stood out for you?
1: Uh, This year I got to read, in terms of long books, that's not as long as uh, War and Peace, of course, but I read, I don't know if you've ever heard about Lonesome Dove. I haven't. It's a Western novel and I'm not a big Western guy, but I had it recommended to me a couple times. And uh, you, know, you look at it and you say, oh my God, 850 pages of Texas in, in the 1800s. But I flew through that book. And then other books that stood out, I, read, uh, I finally read A Man on the Moon, which is uh, about the Apollo space program. They go through each one of them and talk about the astronauts and talk about the experiences. And uh, it's a really well-researched book because the author had a chance to speak to a lot of these astronauts and the administrators of NASA and that sort of thing. If you're interested in the Apollo space program, I think that's the definitive book on it. And then for classics, I tried to get through Moby Dick and um, I wasn't a fan of it. I mean, I, I wanted to love it, but um, the writing style of that time doesn't jive with me, I'll say. But anyway, I got through it. So do you have any other books that you, you want to recommend? I'll put on my reading list for 2021.
0: Uh, yeah, I have three novels then I selected here as what stood out. There is White Teeth by Zadie Smith. That one was on my list of a debut no- novel to read. And uh, it's a book about the stories of immigrants in the United Kingdom. Then there is The Overstory by Richard Powers, which the overarching theme is trees. And it's the life of different people who somehow have to do with trees. And then at the end, it all comes together, which I thought a very interesting structure. And I also was really into the storyline themselves. And one of the things that I did this year, which I usually don't do is to reread a book that I read before. Um, which was also on this list of things of 20 books to select. So I reread Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. And I also, at the second time reading the book, I got some new insights there. There's always more books that I want to read and, and carving out time to reread something that I've read before. Somehow I feel like I could be reading something new, but then I got new insights on something I read before.
1: We should do an episode where we read the same book and sort of do a discussion on it. I know that's outside of the PhD talk. Uh... The overarching theme of this podcast yeah
0: that was great
1: wow i didn't know you read that much 60 books uh, and you said that was a uh, not so prolific year for you so that's incredible i have to have to catch up i think i have to delete some apps from my phone you know i'm not a big social media guy but i spend too much time on youtube and reddit so i think that'll push me to read more maybe
0: i must say i don't watch tv so my way of unwinding at night is reading or anything that's online courses or learning things
1: and uh, what about fitness-related goals? It's been a tough year for fitness, but have you achieved what you wanted to achieve?
0: Yeah, I had uh, the big goal for this year to run a half marathon. And I had selected the race that I wanted to run and and all that. And then I got kind of disheartened because of the pandemic. And I ended up still training for it. And I'm very fortunate to have a treadmill at home. So I ended up running a half marathon at home in 2 hours and 22 minutes, which is pretty much a slow pace but I got through it and then a few weeks after that I got a knee injury that I'm still dealing with so I'm not sure if there's going to be any more long races if that injury is related to the amount of running I did at all or if it's just my age. Uh, It it happened while I I took something out of the cupboard in the kitchen doing a wrong move so I don't know if it's uh, related at all but for now at least I can take that one off my list.
1: I I don't know too much about running but I feel like that's a pretty good pace.
0: No it's not. It's, uh, it's, gra- it's grandma pace. <laughs> when I set out, I was hoping to run sub two hours, but then, yeah, no.
1: Well, you're, go- you're not too far from it. I don't think I've ever ran more than five kilometers, so you're lapping me multiple times.
0: I did all the training on my treadmill here at home, and then I live in a gated community. If I run within our block, that's uh, 0.9 kilometers, so I did a lot of laps in our neighborhood. Actually, last year, I set out to walk the entire, uh, what is called the Chakinyan, that's a, a trail nearby, and that's 20 plus kilometers. I walked that, and it was very scenic, and I walked it with my daughter on my back. At that time, it was doable, because she was 12, 14 kilos, but now it would be quite a hike.
1: My fitness activity of choice in the past has been soccer, but um, organized sports were a bit difficult during the pandemic, obviously. And then my second one is uh, powerlifting or um training at the gym essentially but trying to maximize your one rep max in uh, the bench press the squat and the deadlift and that also the gyms closed down pretty early and so that kind of put a damper on things and i'm in a condo so uh, there's no way i could uh, buy a bench press and i think my fiance wouldn't be happy with me if i put that in the middle of our living room
0: yeah your downstairs neighbors if you drop the weight
1: oh yeah exactly They're, they're gonna have a drywall falling off their ceiling so it's too bad to lose that time but One thing that I have gotten into a lot more is uh, cycling. And so I bought a bike and uh, I really got into that for a while. And uh, I'm still into that now. It's colder. But as soon as it warms up again, I'm going to get back on the bike. In Montreal, we have a mountain in the middle of the the island called Mount Royal. So it's nice to have uh, something where you get to see the city and uh, also get some exercise in. So I've been really enjoying that. Eva, you have on your your list that you sent me of, uh, of topics, you have here listed world cooking project. And I'm not sure what that is, but if I had to guess, you wanted to cook a meal from different countries around the world?
0: That's correct. I started doing something like that, I think at the end of my PhD even. And I've been wanting to do this more on a regular basis, and I made this list of countries. I didn't get to do much cooking from that list, not as much as I would want to, because just being at home, there's been more chores piling up and less opportunities to go grocery shopping. So that hasn't done much progress, but it's always uh, fun to look up recipes from other countries and trying to see what I could turn that into.
1: Has there been any surprises or any standout favorite cuisines of the world?
0: Well, actually, what I did in in 2019 was an attempt at something Canadian, which is like, what is that? This fries with the weird sauce on it?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's pronounced poutine.
0: Okay. Yeah, I wasn't going to try to butcher the word, but I tried it out and I actually put too much salt in it. So it turned out very, very salty, but it was still interesting.
1: Sure. Well, to go on a little Canadian rant, it's difficult to produce good poutine outside of, I guess, Quebec or Canada because you can't find the right cheese. It's made with cheese curds. And I know in a lot of places that's difficult to find. Maybe not where where you were uh, when you were making this, but I know a lot of YouTubers will use like uh, mozzarella or... Or something like that, which is just not the same.
0: I will probably rate you further because I tried to do a plant-based version of it. So I supped for <laughs> any vegan cheese, etc. And
1: Well, you know what, I have to give you points for that. If you had to pick a dish to try from, well, you're originally from Belgium. So what's the Belgian dish besides French fries?
0: Many of them are more based stews and things like that that are more winter food. There's the influence of the French kitchen there. So there is the more Belgian version of the Beuf bourguignon. There is the more Belgian version of what the Dutch have that is hupsepot. So all these kind of stews that are somewhere holding the middle between the, as people like to say, the size of servings and hardiness of the German food with the more refinement of the French cuisine.
1: I'm going to do some Belgian or Dutch, French, German cooking soon. I'll let you know how it goes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This has been the fifth episode of the PG Talk podcast in which we look back on our personal and research projects of 2020. Thank you for listening and hope to see you back next week.